0: Welcome to the Talking Poem Podcast. I'm your host, Charlie Green. On each episode, I invite a poet, critic, or reader to bring in any poem they'd like to talk about for any reason, old or new, well-known or obscure, and we'll talk about what delights us, what excites us, maybe even what frustrates us, and we'll see where the poem and the conversation turn. On today's show, our guests will also read a poem of hers, and we'll talk about that. And if there's time, we'll have a little bit of silliness at the end because I can't help myself. On today's show, I am so happy to have poet and writer Kim Adinizio. She's the author of seven poetry collections, including Tell Me, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, and 2021's Now We're Getting Somewhere, which I've just read, and which is an absolute stunner. I loved it. She's also the author of two novels and two story collections, the 2016 memoir, Bukowski in a Sundress, Confessions from a Writing Life, and two guides to writing poetry, including with Dorian Locke's The Fantastic Poets Companion, A Guide to the Pleasures of Writing Poetry, which I'm using right now in my intermediate poetry writing class. Her awards include two NEA fellowships, a Guggenheim, Pushcart Prizes, and I just have to stop listing her accomplishments now because I only have so much of her time. Kim Adnizio, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
0: So you've brought in Ruth Stone's poem "Train Ride," and a little later on, you're going to share your own train poem. Before you read "Train Ride" for us, do you have any preface that you want to share?
1: Just, I think this poem was written in about 2002, and I have just loved it for many, many years. It's something I wish I had written. So it's, it's the jealousy factor. It tells <laughs> me it's. I I just think it's it's a beautiful poem, and I, I wish I could write something like it.
0: I feel very much the same way. We'll talk about why in just a bit. So whenever you're ready, go ahead and read the poem.
1: Okay, this is Train Ride by Ruth Stone. All things come to an end. Small calves in Arkansas, the bend of the muddy river. Do all things come to an end? No, they go on forever. They go on forever. The swamp, the vine-choked cypress, the oaks rattling last year's leaves the thump of the rails, the kite, the still white stilted heron. All things come to an end. The red clay bank, the spread hawk, the bodies riding this train, the stalled truck, pale sunlight, the talk. The talk goes on forever, the wide dry field of geese. A man stopped near his porch to watch. Release, release. Between cold death and a fever, send what you will. I will listen. All things come to an end. No, they go on forever.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I love the way that you read that. So I'm curious to hear what about this poem makes you wish that you had written it?
1: Well, you know, I I fell under this poem's spell so much that I didn't want to analyze it for a long time. I just Mm -hmm. wanted to say it over and over. I think that's one thing poetry can do so well, is just take us into this magical, ineffable kind of space, kind of the what is of consciousness in in the physical world. And so, I I loved it, and I didn't want to think about it for a long time. But then, of course, I wanted to share it with students and talk about it. So, Mm -hmm. we ended up talking about it quite a bit. Um, But I love she shows us, of course, the scenery of the train ride, the calves, the river, the cypress, the oaks, the kite, the heron, all the things of the natural world that also suggest ongoingness and cycles. So there's a lot of death and rebirth in the images that she chooses. A train ride is, is a journey. The river is on a journey to the sea the calves are going to be slaughtered one day everything in the poem sort of speaks to life and death and the paradox of life and death which which the whole poem really does the leaves are rattling the geese are migrating <laughs> everything really so so it maybe it seems at first like it's lovely scenery which it definitely is but it's also also everything she chooses she's chosen so carefully to sort of show the the cycles of, of the natural world and human life itself. So that's one thing that I really admire.
0: And it's irreconcilable. I love the ending. And I spent a lot of time after you sent the poem feeling a little like you at first, not wanting to talk about it or analyze it because there's something incantatory about it with the way there's that repetition. And part of it is there's a way in which it feels like a villanelle with the repeated lines but without mm-hmm. having the sort of obvious structure that you know anytime i read a villanelle even when it's mind-blowing there's still that this is a a really crafted form i can't stop thinking about craft and in this it i don't have that there's just something incantatory about the repetition the red clay bank the spread hawk this like the sound the stalled truck pale sunlight the talk just the rhythm of it is so fantastic
1: Yeah, well, there's so many great sounds in it. I mean, they're just, uh, the way she puts things together, it's just, you know, there's so much music in it at the same time. And even the sounds, besides the sounds of the language, like the still white stilted heron, the sound of that is just, you know, amazing and wonderful. But she even does literal sounds. The leaves are rattling. There's the thump of the, the rails, the talk. And then she gives us the silence also. Which is, of course, part of music, the sound and the silence. So I, I think just that the the amateur musician in me really responds to the music of her language as well,
0: yeah, and I feel like it captures to some extent, or at least especially in those the red Clay bank, the spread Hawk, there's almost the the sort of rhythm of a train. and i I think that there may be some extent that I'm just hearing that because as soon as I hear, the word "train," I can kind of hear that rhythm, but I do feel like the language is the rhythm of it is just so skillful. The talk goes on forever.
1: Yes, yes, and also there's you know, bank and hawk and trunk and talk and talk. All of those kaka k- sounds. Also,
0: one of the things that I find so appealing about this poem is the way that rhyme works in it. That there's a kind of casualness in that it frames the poem. We get rhymes at the beginning and the end. And then they sort of drift away and then come back at the end. So we get fever and forever. We get the the hawk and the talk. But it sort mm-hmm. of comes in and out. And mm-hmm. I, I, I feel like that's a savvy mood. One, because I love the sound. And two, because it, it doesn't draw a ton of attention to itself.
1: Right. Yeah, they're end rhymes, but they're not very organized end rhymes. So you mm-hmm. hear them, but you just sort of go from rhyme to rhyme to rhyme in, a, in what feels like a much more natural way than sometimes strict patterns of end rhyme can be. It reminds me a little of Kay Ryan's work. She's another writer I love, and, and her poems very much, you know, these sort of, these little stones that, of rhyme that you go from one to the next to the next, but they're placed in odd places, Mm-hmm. You know, and you never know quite how far you're going to leap to the next one, but but it it generally does that.
0: Yeah, I I actually was thinking of her too. In part, I think maybe the length of the poem and the way the rhymes work. I always think of Kay Ryan's. There's a there's a different kind of playfulness to the rhymes because there mm-hmm. you know she often has these multi syllabic rhymes that have this kind of humor in them. But I also the the way that there's not a consistent pattern, but it's there, and it's one of the pleasures. is so great. One of the lines I'm a little baffled by, or at least I, well, baffled by, and I can't really articulate anything that specific about it, is release, release Mm -hmm. between cold death and a fever. And I'm curious how you take that, how you understand it. I like it a lot. I just don't, I'm not, if I had to try to explain it, I don't think I could.
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if I can either. I mean, it's one more paradox, like things come to an end, no, they go on forever. The whole poem is paradoxical. You know, cold death and a fever are, I mean, on the one hand, fever might lead to cold death, but on the other hand, it's it's between the two. I, I don't know. I, I mean, send what you will, who's she talking to? I think just life itself, you know, the whole cycle of life, like send what you will. And whatever it is, I will try to listen and try to, I guess, be with it more than understand it. You know, just mm-hmm. it's just a, a sort of acceptance of the whole cycle, I think, including death.
0: I like that because, I mean, there's the permanence and the what's temporary, the things that or, or that go on forever is death. But fever can can come to an end. It's the release, the release, or release, release that I feel
1: mm-hmm.
0: not mystified by, because I don't think it's it's intended to be confusing. I'm thinking of like the Flannery O'Connor distinction between mystery and mystification, mm-hmm. and it, it just feels mysterious to me. But it also feels of a piece with everything else. I love the rhyme with geese, and also. Who is being released from what, or what is just being released? And it, it just opens itself to possibility of both everything that comes before and what comes after.
1: Yeah, release from life, release from the cycle, mm-hmm. release from uh, resistance <laughs> of mm-hmm. the cycle. Maybe maybe it contains all that. It's it's spiritual, it's paradoxical, it's physical, it's beautiful.
0: So something I want to mention that it's I I didn't pick up on this on my first read, but there's there's also a humor to it, especially that line: "The talk goes on forever." <laughs> that feeling of tedium, but also you know, talk can be possibility, especially near the man. Stop near his porch to watch. Who is both? He's not going to be there forever, and yet there's a way the image is going to be there for her forever. And so I I feel like there's a little bit of humor. That sneaks into a poem that still has what's so incantatory about it.
1: Yeah, you know, it reminds me a little of uh, the Elizabeth Bishop poem, "The Moose," which has the talk, to- all the talk on the bus. You know, as everybody's sort of going through the night before they finally, before they finally see stop or stopped on the road, and this gigantic moose is in front of them. I think about those. I can't remember the. I haven't looked at the poem in a while, but everybody's sort of talking along and murmuring and offering commonplaces, mm-hmm. I think, until the magic of the apparition, really, almost of the moose.
0: That's great. I hadn't I hadn't made that connection at all. I need to go back to the moose. I feel like teaching poetry, whether reading or writing, the, there are certain bishop poems that are old standbys, like you have to teach. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Sestina, if you're talking about form... The thing I love about teaching is going back to poems again and again, but I feel like there's the, sometimes the artificial, I'm teaching this because I have to or should or because it teaches well.
1: Yeah, well, ideally, you have both, right? You can te- you teach poems you love that also offer, uh, what, a teaching moment, mm-hmm. I guess, as people say.
0: Yeah. yeah, I feel like I'm, I mean... Yeah. I don't feel bad about it, but I worry sometimes I'm not earning my paycheck when I just point at something in a poem and I say, that's fantastic. I love that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I mean, the best way to turn anybody on is is to show them something you love. You know, if you don't love it, how are your students going to love it? How are they going to care if you don't care about it?
0: Yeah, exactly. I wanted to mention one other thing about the ending because it made me think of, not just shakespearean sonnets but a lot of shakespeare's sonnets where the end of the poem is sort of reiterating the idea that you will pass but but you will live in my words and it kind of has that echo except that i like that it's i like that this poem is detached from a specific lover or a specific other that it's this very meditative quiet uh, moment just for the speaker and and us who's getting to overhear her
1: yeah, it's not so long lives this and this gives life to thee. Yeah. <laughs> As Shakespeare said. But I also love, you know, this is something I'm just thinking about now is, is the way she starts out with this assertion, all things come to an end. But then she quests, oh, do all things come to an end? Mm-hmm. I love that she first states it and a couple lines later says, well, do they? You know, in the and the poem sort of questions itself and 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 immediately says, "No, they go on forever, so there's this whole you know sort of internal tension between do they or do they not?" and you know yes or no, and yes and no is right. her answer which which I think is wonderful, and she also ends of course, she begins all things come to an end, but then she comes back at the end and says, "No, they go on forever." which I think is such a statement of hope or a a recognition or an acceptance that everything doesn't die. Sort Mm -hmm. of as Whitman says, you know, nothing dies, leads life forward. So I I feel that happening at the end, which I just think is really, you know, heartening, I guess. Gives me heart somehow.
0: Yeah. And I think part of it, I just sort of, I hadn't thought about it this way, but it's so often I feel like I hear the idea that, Something is going to last, as will that future tense. And I love that we're in the present. They go on forever. And so they are in part just in the present of being noticed. There's also going to be the ongoingness of the various images she's put in the poem. They're going to be ongoing in the poem. They're going to be ongoing in terms of how we see them and how we interact with them. And I love that it's not they will. They just do. They go on forever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So everything is sort of held in suspension. Even the hawk, you know, the spread hawk. Mm-hmm. Well, the hawk's up there either riding the thermals looking for, you know, it's a predator and it's looking for its food, <laughs> but that's part of the cycle too, right? But yeah. in the poem, it's always just spread up in the air. It doesn't, it's not landing. It's not killing anything or eating anything. And, and there's that sense in the whole poem that, that she sort of keeps you almost aloft with the commas and the way that that the poem moves just feels like we're we're in a sort of state of suspended now
0: i love that the thump of the rails the kite and that there there are those pauses that allow the images to sort of take root for us in a way the vine choked cypress the oaks and what you said about the the spread hawk i don't know to what extent this is the case for stone to what extent this was the case now I'm looking at the poem as kind of, in a way, partial response to the heaven of animals by James Dickey, where, you know, it's part of what's built into that poem is the predators are still being predators, but the prey experience it in a different way. And here, like you said, there's no, the predation is not part of it. We just get to see the image of the spread hawk. and stays a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I love it a lot. And I've been reading through her, her collected since you sent this poem. And she's, she's fantastic.
1: Yeah. She's got some wonderful poems.
0: Do you remember when you first encountered her or this poem?
1: I don't remember. Actually, I really don't know how I discovered her. I think it was the poem curtains. Oh, okay. Which is about her husband's suicide. And, and I had an early book of hers that I liked. And then eventually, I think there was some kind of a tribute at AWP one year when she was still alive. And maybe I learned more about her then. And then I eventually bought her her collected poems, or maybe it's new and selected. I can't remember, but I have somewhere around here in the piles. I have a big book of of a a lot of her work. Uh, But this is one, I don't remember when I found it or how, uh, just that It stayed with me and I started reading it at readings because when I started playing the harmonica and decided I wanted to try to integrate it somehow into my poetry readings, I had no real reason to, except that I had a sort of captive audience <laughs> that I could play the harmonica for or or really inflict on the audience at that point. But I wanted to just get up in front of people and play. And it was a way of sort of challenging myself to have the courage to do that. And then one day it occurred to me that I really should have a train song <laughs> to go with this. So I had an excuse to play a train song on my harmonica. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I need a train song. And I hadn't really written anything. You know, I didn't really have a train poem, and I found this or came across this, and I went, this is so beautiful. So I started reading Ruth Stone's poem at my readings, and that would give me an excuse to play my train song on my harmonica, and then I eventually wrote some train poems, but they finally started popping up here and there. But I still love love to read this poem to people and and to audiences, who, especially when they don't know it.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm delighted to, to know it now. And that's actually the perfect segue. You mentioned writing your own train poem. So we can go ahead and turn to yours, uh, Kansas 4AM. You can either jump into reading it, or if, again, if there's something you want to say to preface it, you're welcome to.
1: Well, I could say that it took a very long time from beginning to end. It was a few lines in a journal from a few years before. When I came across it again, I often make these notes and I go back over the months to see what kind of notes I made. And A lot of times I'm copying, pasting articles from the Times or whatever interests me or getting fragments of poems started. And I came back to this fragment and thought, I like that. I want to work with that. And I I hadn't been able to at the time, but maybe three or four years later, I suddenly was able to write the poem that I had tried and failed to write years ago. So it's a good, you know, good to hang on to your weird little fragments mm-hmm. that that may not go anywhere at the time. But sometimes if you wait long enough, a different person comes back and, and writes the poem. This is Kansas, 4 a.m. The train breaks to take the bend behind the grain mill. All night at the motel, you listen to the ice machine's cold labor. Does it ever stop? Thunk. No, says the snack machine as the next train goes by. On the highway, the big rigs whine, some carrying things that would kill you if one jackknifed off the overpass. The chicken truck passes with its load of small-brained misery. You can't hear the chickens, but you sort of think you can, the way you can almost hear the sounds of the bar car on the train the bleary passengers trapped in their windows, peering through their doppelgangers at the black fields of wheat as they whiz past. Childhood, did it ever exist? What about the bar your father drank in, giving you endless quarters for pinball? There it goes, carried aloft by a maniacal wind. Before science, a lot of wind gods blew things around. The dead went to live on the moon. A man might be half scorpion, a woman half fish. An omniscient, omnipotent stranger who looked like Santa Claus and had a throne in outer space, knew everything about you, yet still loved you unreasonably. Another chunk of ice clunks into the bin. Under your window, an insect in the bushes scrapes out its longing. The sounds of the world at this late hour sadden you, but then enters the rain, hastening down, the rain that wants to touch everything, and almost does.
0: Thank you so much. I, I'm similarly a great fan of this poem. Uh, I'm curious how explicitly you were thinking of train ride when you were working on this poem. Because there are things that echo that poem, but I sometimes our unconscious is smarter than our conscious brain. So I'm just curious how much you had that in mind.
1: I think it probably was unconscious, actually. I, I mean, when i reading it just now, I felt a lot more of an affinity with the Ruth Stone poem, but I hadn't really thought about that before. There's a lot of imagery here that sort of focuses on the landscape in the way that the Stone poem does, but... I'm not on the train that's a big difference here. Yeah. You know, Stone's poem is is the bodies on this train. So she's with these people one of them and this speaker is in a motel room hearing the train go by and imagining those people who are actually on the train and then sort of taking it to other places yeah. like childhood and time.
0: Exactly. And this poem has such a strong feeling of and interested in in loneliness with the image of the passengers appearing through their doppelgangers, I mean, the speaker thinking about the father. And one of the things I love, and I don't want to analyze your poem in front of you too much. I just want to note how great they are. Like the way that the poem moves from one thing to the next is just seems kind of brilliant and both skillful and, and incredibly intelligent. The moving to the childhood did it ever exist? It's like this associative leap, but it's one that makes sense. The idea of looking through a window and someone seeing the image of themselves reflected back. And then the going from the maniacal wind to before science, a lot of wind gods. That's just, that's so fantastic.
1: Yeah, well, you know, everything just whizzing by and time going by and looking back and saying, what, what was that about? Did that even happen? It was, it seems, you know, it just what happens? It feels like things disappear. And then going back yeah. further in time to sort of the disappearance of magic, really, the disappearance of magic and wonder when, you know, where do people go when they die? Well, they go to heaven or they go live on the moon. You know, a child's conception of, of life and, and magic where you have mermaids and monsters and all the things that that are part of that sense of of magic and trying to understand the world as a child and how we make sense of our world you know and then sort of pulling us back into the present with the ice clunking into the bin
0: I love that juxtaposition too it's it's a fantastic poem i really i really like it a lot the only other thing i'll mention is that the only connection other connection between them i'll mention is arkansas and kansas which is not at all intentional but is also delightful to me by accident because i'm from arkansas
1: Oh, so. okay, yeah. <laughs> I spent a month in Kansas when I was a visiting writer there at in Wichita. And uh and so part of the, the images of the poem come from that.
0: That makes that makes sense. And I like that I like that specificity in both the poems that it's one is calves in Arkansas, the other is, is Kansas. I always just love that we're immediately thrust into a place like that. So Thank you so much for sharing this poem. Are you ready for some silliness?
1: Uh, okay.
0: All right. So first, in honor of your visit today, the podcast is brought to you by the BBC Four Show and Takes, Isn't It?, with John Keats. Do you have something potentially valuable you'd like John Keats to assess? Maybe a family heirloom or a garage sale find? John Keats can appraise anything from the hushed casket of your soul, to a draft of vintage, to a dusty old urn, or a collection of ancient Greek sculptures on long, 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 long long-term loan, to one of Melancholy's cloudy trophies hung, to a translation of Homer. John Keats always gives his honest appraisal. As he always says, beauty is truth, and truth beauty, and all ye need to know is what beauty is worth. And one reminder, please stop asking him to appraise any vast and trunkless legs of stone. That's antiques, isn't it? On BBC4 followed by Oi, booze and snoggin. So. What? <laughs> What's going on? The, <laughs> the people I record with who know me are like, yeah, that's your sense of humor. Okay, great. And, and booze
1: and snoggin. You, okay.
0: Yeah. What well, have it, you ever It's a watched, little early
1: for day drinking, but okay.
0: <laughs> have you ever watched Love Island UK? No it's they have there are a series of reality dating shows from the uk which are much more watchable than dating shows here basically they wake up they get into their swimsuits and often start drinking before noon and it's fantastic it's sort of the inverse of the u.s where a lot of accents are kind of flattened out and it's such a smaller island and yet all of their accents are exaggerated it's very charming to me and so you mentioned earlier you know you get to have a captive audience for playing the harmonica part of the reason I'm doing this is just to have a captive audience for stupid jokes so (laughs) so Kim do you follow international soccer at all no oh fantastic I'm
1: sorry no
0: no no you Uh don't need to apologize because today Uh we are going to play a game that I'm calling kicking or singing I'm going to give you a name and I'd like you to tell me if it's an international soccer player, the kicking, or a Nobel laureate in literature, hence the singing. You're not going to find any Pele's or Toni Morrison's on the list, so no easy answers here. We're digging deep. Are you ready?
1: Okay, I'm ready, Coach.
0: <laughs> and these are in alphabetical <laughs> order by first name. And if a certain point this just gets too tedious for you, we can stop. But because I have ten of these, okay. First is Alfredo Stefano di Stefano Laohe who Pele called the best soccer player in the world, and he had the nickname the Blonde Arrow. Or he was the Nobel Prize winner cited, quote, for his distinctive poetry, which, with great artistic sensitivity, has interpreted human values under the sign of an outlook on life with no illusions. Is Alfredo de Stefano an international soccer player or a Nobel laureate?
1: I'm going to say singer.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. He is actually. Uh, eh,
1: yep. You did a, one of those buzzers.
0: Yeah, I, I feel the like blonde
1: I, arrow. Oh yeah, the blonde arrow.
0: Yeah, I love no, that nickname. No idea. I was also shocked to find that that Pele was basically said no. He's better than I am. Pele, at least for me, is for a long time was the only soccer player who ever existed because I didn't follow soccer. Number two, Bjorn Stern Bjornsson. <laughs> I'm sorry. I love the name. Bjornstern Bjornsson. Is he a striker for Manchester City and regarded as one of the best players in the world with the nickname the Nordic Nightmare? Or is he the Nobel Prize winner cited, quote, as a tribute to his noble, magnificent, and versatile poetry, which has always been distinguished by both the freshness of its inspiration and the rare purity of its spirit?
1: I'm going to say kicker.
0: Oh, I'm so sorry. He is not Wrong the Nordic again. nightmare. Uh, he is the Nobel <laughs> laureate. Part of the reason I was fascinated by this is I was going to the Nobel oh laureate God. list one day. And it's like, oh, yeah. People this, you've this
1: never one. heard of.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And they're, they're of course, like all Central European or Northern Euro- European. All right. Number three. <laughs> I'm sorry for giggling at this. All right. Frank Puskas. Is he the soccer player who led Hungary to the gold medal in the 1952 Olympics and the 1954 World Cup final, also known as the galloping major? Or is he the Nobel Prize winner cited in recognition of the fresh originality and true inspiration of his poetic production, which faithfully reflects the natural scenery and native spirit of his people, and in addition, his significant work as a Hungarian philologist?
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) Hungarian philologist. I'm going to go with kicker.
0: Absolutely correct. He is a oh, Hungarian finally. soccer player. Yes. Finally, none of these are obvious. There are no giveaways here. I will tell you that for a number of these, I invented uh, nicknames for them, like the Nordic Nightmare. But the rest of the actual nicknames are real. Number four. Number four. Franz Anton Beckenbauer was Beckenbauer the best all-around soccer player ever. And nicknamed Der Kaiser, or was he the Nobel Prize winner cited, quote, in special recognition of his poetic composition, which gives evidence of lofty idealism, artistic perfection, and a rare combination of the qualities of both heart and intellect?
1: So is it Bendit like Beckenbauer, or is it, uh, (laughs) is it this other? Oh, God, I don't know. I'm going to say Der Kaiser. I'm going to say soccer. Yeah. Kicker.
0: Absolutely. He is. He is a soccer player.
1: Der Kaiser kicker.
0: Fun fact about him. Did you ever see the Monty Python sketch, the philosophers football match, where it's basically Greek philosophers versus German philosophers. And they all the game's about to start and then they walk around the pitch sort of thinking and philosophizing. No. Like a lot of Monty Python sketches, it's very silly and and. Also strangely funny, but the only actual soccer player in the game is Franz Beckenbauer. Oh, okay. (laughs) All right. Number five, Josue Carducci. Is Josue Carducci an Italian soccer player, widely considered one of the greatest defenders ever, and nicknamed Il Capitano, or is he the Nobel Prize winner cited, quote, not only in consideration of his deep learning and critical research, but above all, as a tribute to his creative energy, freshness of style, and lyrical force, which characterize his poetic masterpieces.
1: What's his name again?
0: Josue Carducci. Carducci? Yes.
1: Oh, man. (laughs) I want to claim an Italian as a Nobel guy, but I feel like Carducci just sounds like a soccer player.
0: It does sound like a soccer player. It is, however, a Nobel Prize winner.
1: Gosh darn it.
0: Yeah. Do you? Would you like to keep going? I have. Oh well, my gosh. I have. I, I
1: I'm I'm down one at this point, so I want to at least even my score.
0: Okay. Let's see here. I'll. I, or try. I'll to. just keep. I'll keep going until you're ready to stop. Okay. We have our first female soccer player or Nobel laureate in the list, Marta Vieira da Silva, known affectionately as Marta. Generally considered the greatest female soccer player of all time, or was she the Nobel Prize winner cited, quote, in recognition of the numerous and brilliant compositions which, in an individual and original manner, have revived the great traditions of the Spanish drama?
1: I'm going to go with Nobel.
0: No, Marta is oh, the man. greatest I, female. I smother. suck at this. <laughs> <laughs> the, okay, here's the I thing. Totally I totally suck. I have said this on every single episode. These games are not at all pitched to be gettable. Only one person has aced it and he's there is no, there was no getting around him. And otherwise, these games are so silly because if you don't know international soccer, there's no way of getting this game because who remembers any of these Nobel laureates? I'm
1: going to quit while I'm behind. OK, <laughs> that's it. I'm, I'm going to just hang it up right here before I get myself in even deeper.
0: All right. Thank you so much for being here and for tolerating at the end my sense of humor. Is there anything you'd like to mention or plug before we sign off?
1: Thanks, Charlie. I don't think so. Yeah, you know, I've got a new book coming out in next September called Exit Opera uh, from Norton again. Otherwise, I'm just, you know, doing readings and teaching and, you know, playing the banjo.
0: Banjo and harmonica.
1: And flute. Yeah. And
0: flute. Yeah, Any other instruments?
1: Multiply <laughs> attracted.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. No, that's it for now. God help me if I get attracted to another one. It's like, it's enough already.
0: Well, thank you so, so much for being here. I will plug Now We're Getting Somewhere. It's a fantastic book. I emailed links to poems to several people and kept like screenshotting lines or typing lines to my friend Nick, who's also a big fan. And so, yeah, really fantastic collection. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to everyone for listening. Have a wonderful day. Go pet some dogs, read some poems, and support some striking workers wherever you find them. Bye.